Good morning and welcome to Trending. This has been Rogers. I am delighted and honored to have Congressman John Rose that represents Tennessee's 6th District in Congress in D.C. Uh, first time I've had you on, first time I really got to talk to you. And I've only met you, I guess, really once on the courthouse lawn, I think July 4th last year. And I, I'm, it's, I'm sad to say that's the only time I've been around you, but this is good for us. So I'm glad to get to talk to you. I'm glad our listeners get to, to, talk, to hear from you uh, because you've got a lot going on. I know you're busy and I'm really thankful you took the time. So welcome. Well, thank you. It's it's good to be here, and thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Um, I, I know the listeners really want to know kind of what's going on with everything going on in D.C., and you're, you're our representative. You're up there doing everything you can to make your constituents, their life, and their living better. They kind of want to know what's going on, and I, I, I didn't know if there was anything you want to start with, so I had a few few questions. Stimulus money. Sure. You know, we already have one package rollout in the spring uh, for COVID-19, and we don't have to get particulars of COVID and, and all that because that's basically what I've been talking about the last six months in the show with different people because <laughs> it's affected every level of government, federal, state, local, all the way down. But the stimulus package was built to help uh, states and local governments. And of course, that's something y'all approved. You're now talking about another stimulus package. Uh, with, before I get to that, when do you, when do you have to be back in D.C.? to meet back in session well just learning today uh, we had heard kind of rumors over the weekend we're going to go back on saturday so Mm -hmm. i'll travel back on friday for a session on saturday but normally uh, we would have not returned until the kind of the first full week of september following labor day uh, and they had actually moved that back a week. So I think previously we were scheduled to go back on like the 14th or 15th of September. Sure. But now this Saturday. Is the first thing, I mean, I know you don't know, but do you think the first thing you're going to talk about is the, the next stimulus package? No. In fact, it, what appears to be on the agenda for Saturday is going to be legislation relating to the United States Postal System, okay. Postal Service, and uh, and I wouldn't even say a bail out of the postal system, but uh, but actually relating to changes that are being made and concerns that the Democrats have, uh, efficiency moves that the new postmaster general was making. And they're trying to stop those out of a fear that those are intended to somehow limit the Postal Service's ability to deal with the uh, election ballots this fall. So you've, you've only been in a year and a half, roughly? That's right. January 3rd, uh, night, uh, 2019 was when I was sworn in. So a little over a year, your district's hit with a tornado right? Uh, with a lot of damage. And then you facing COVID-19, and that's, that's that we're getting with the stimulus. But have you sat back and shaking your head like, wow? Well, certainly no one, including me, expected the range of issues that we've had to deal with. You know, we when I was sworn in on January 3rd in, in uh, 2019, the government was in the, lo- in the midst of the long, what turned out to be the longest shutdown. It was a partial shutdown. And then uh, then we spent most of the House, at least uh, the leadership, was focused on trying to chase the president all of last year. And so it's been an unusual time. And then COVID, of course, hit, uh, you know, in March. Well, I want to go ahead and, and thank you for serving us because I, I, I couldn't think of anybody better to come in and what you've done in a short amount of time. And I want to get to, to one of the committees you're on because it's kind of unheard of for a freshman congressman to be put on finance and, and that committee. We'll talk about that later on if that's okay. Sure. Uh, but the stimulus part, you know, you come in, COVID-19's caused all this stimulus. And the like I said, one package has been introduced. You're looking at another one. Uh, the payroll tax relief that was mentioned last week by President Trump, is that part of the stimulus package or is that something separate? Well, it might be part of the next package. Uh, we've actually passed four measures. Uh, they call them phase one, two, three, and kind of three and a half, I think, is what a lot of people refer to the fourth one measure as. But the CARES Act, which is the kind of the biggest of the of the four and was the third that we passed, 
about $2.4, $2.5 trillion, yes with a T, right. um, included unemployment insurance um, adjustment for uh, everyone across the country, which actually increased that by $600 a week, funded by the federal government uh, for every person who became unemployed as a result of, well, who became unemployed during this period. Right. And so that's became, it was controversial when it was proposed. It obviously became more controversial as we began to see indeed the impact that it had on the economy all across the country and and I, it's been a help to a lot of people that that obviously lost their job and and they needed that and of course they're changing maybe the amount or talk i should say they've changed it because that's not official yet they're thinking about lowering the amount of unemployment and having the state step in correct that's right um that's- have you gotten any feedback from your state officials on that we have so uh both uh both from business people all across the district and then from some state officials as well so the so going back to the march uh uh cares act uh it provided for this additional six hundred dollars per week uh per person uh which you know is is wonderful i guess if you're receiving it uh no doubt but but for many people, it's much more than they were making when they were employed. Right. And so that creates a perverse incentive. You know, obviously, if you're making two or three times what you were making uh, when you were employed, you're going to be hesitant to go back to work. And so that's the wrong incentive, not an incentive that we needed to send. We knew that going in The several of the senators and the CARES Act was really negotiated on the Senate side because the House Democrats refused to be involved in the negotiations. Right. And so the some of the conservative senators spotted this and tried to stop it. Uh, they were unsuccessful, and so it passed. And, and from the outset, many of us were concerned that it would delay the reopening of the economy because the workforce out there who had become unemployed uh, you know, would be reticent to go back to work. And indeed, it caused a lot of people who to, to, to want to be unemployed. You know, I've heard stories of people who asked to be laid off right. so that they could right. draw that unemployment. And we even saw uh, some states kind of gaming the system. So in Michigan, the state of Michigan laid off its employees one day a week so that they could all draw the $600 uh, wow. federal supplement unemployment. Wow. And, I'm, and so mention that I have a friend that that works in a restaurant as a server, and of course they she she did get laid off or was employed unemployed because of the shutdown and nobody allowed to come in the restaurant. So they they told her you know you get on unemployment and she's like hey I'm making twice as much as I was and it's like oh wow so she didn't really like it though she's like this is not fair <laughs> so she's like what do I do do I do I stop getting the money do I do I live and her dad's like you you got to live you got to pay your bills you got to get through school she's a college student so I've heard stories like that. This new this new stimulus package won't be as I guess uh, overstated for revenue, right? So the there there's been negotiations going on now for literally two and a half months, I guess you would say, over what the next package might uh, involve. Unfortunately, uh, Nancy Pelosi and the House uh, uh, Democrat leadership made kind of the calculated decision that they were going to play hard to get, so to speak, and so they've refused to negotiate. Uh, in recent weeks. And so they let that uh, previous uh, plus up is what they call it in Washington, but that uh, previous increase in unemployment insurance, they let that expire in late July. So then the president came along and he has proposed or in trying to use the executive power of the presidency to to provide an enhancement to unemployment insurance. And he proposed a three hundred dollar per week uh, enhancement with states in uh, uh authorized to provide another hundred that right. the state pays for. And so I think that's kind of st- caught in in uh, in limbo at this point. It's not clear that the president has that authority. Uh, we hear a lot of, of, you know, talk about that. What can the president do on on his own? Sure. And, and so that's where that is. So we're still really, it's really caught as an impasse at this point. I, I heard 
uh, Nancy Pelosi say, not this weekend, but last weekend, that uh, she didn't want to negotiate? I, I want to. I'll ask you. I'll wait till next segment to ask you a question on some of the some of the dealings and communication that you go through. I can't imagine. We'll get to that next segment. But uh, the the CARES Act and part of that, of course, you know, I, I work with county officials every day and I consult with them. And my job is to give them the best information possible. I'm not regulatory. They don't have to listen to anything I say. Some never do. Some just call me and ask me questions and chalk it up as something they don't listen to. But one thing that affects them right now through the the stimulus and the CARES Act is the coronavirus relief fund. I think it's section five zero zero one. That that money was sent from the federal government down to the state. Tennessee decided to allocate the money they received, which I believe was close to a billion or over a billion. They decided to allocate one hundred fifteen million to local governments for uh, reimbursement or to spend the next couple of months on expenses related to COVID nineteen. Now I think the date, the mar- the date goes back to March. Um, would the next stimulus package, you think, and, then, and of course I know it's opinion now, but you think would that loosen the restrictions on local governments? Because some counties and cities are are actually having financial troubles and struggles. They would like to maybe supplant that that money from the state just to operate on. Do you see maybe in the next stimulus package? Your thoughts? I, I think there probably will be uh, greater flexibility granted uh, when it's all said and done. And that was probably going to be a part of this uh, fifth package uh, when it when it came through, and there was a lot of discussion around that. Going back to March at the time, the general thought of the Congress, and of course at that point, um, you no know, one expected this to last as long as it has. So there, you know, it was a much more of a of a short term mentality about what this was going to be. But the view was we didn't want to allow state and local governments uh, all that much flexibility because we didn't want it to be a bailout to sure. poorly managed cities and states across the country. Right. And so that. That's what really drove the limitations on how the funding could be used. I think since that time, there's been a, a, a broad recognition that um, you know state and local leaders are probably in a better position to decide how they need to use these funds. And so I think there's a general consensus right now that there will probably be more flexibility. What's been holding that up is that um, Speaker Pelosi and the House Democrats took the position back in mid-May that they wanted to provide another three, three and a half trillion dollars sure. in funding. And so that the that became the focus of the negotiations. And even now, you know, they've they've told the Senate side negotiators in the White House that I think the president and and those and the Senate leaders were looking at maybe another trillion dollars and they've said uh, double that and then we'll start talking. Wow. And uh, and so, you know, that's kind of where things stand presently. Okay. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about the coronavirus relief fund because a lot of my listeners are really involved with what's going on with their cities and counties, if that's okay. You're listening to Trending. This has been Rogers. I am visiting with Congressman John Rose. So happy he's here. We'll continue to talk in just a moment. Welcome back to Trending. This has been Rogers. I continue to visit with Congressman John Rose. So happy he's here. We've been talking about the CARES Act and stimulus packages. Uh, and more specifically, we, we ended on the coronavirus relief fund. And I said the state got a, a billion. It's more like $2.36 billion they got from the federal government for uh, COVID-19 related issues. But the state's going to give counties and local and cities $115 million this time around that we know of. Uh, cities and counties are trying to figure out what they can use the money for when they call me in the counties and say, hey, what's a justifiable expense? Well, what we're, what we're being told is that anything that will help you create uh, social distancing among your employees or make it your uh, facilities better or healthier to avoid any kind of contact with COVID-19, you can spend it on. 
but it hasn't exactly been laid out. Well, they could buy if if, if a, a, a ambulance if they have two people riding an ambulance and they need one per ambulance, they can buy another ambulance. We haven't really got the go ahead on that. Or for a county highway department, you know, they a lot of the times their workers will carpool in the same vehicle, a truck or a car, to get to a site. Well, now they're saying you don't really need to do that. So can the highway department go buy another vehicle? We don't really know. Do you think that guidance will be more clear soon, or is that a question that you don't know if you can answer or not? <laughs> well, I think this is what you're, we're seeing here. One of the problems with top-down government, big federal government, and you know, obviously, the CARES Act and the other coronavirus uh, bills that we passed were passed hastily to try and get aid out as quickly as possible. And so, frankly, a lot of the details were not addressed. And then the question becomes. So if you kind of take liberties with what you can do, how are you going to be held to account down the line? And we've all had experience uh, with seeing the federal government step in later and say, well, we're going to impose uh, hindsight now and say you didn't do what you should have done. So that, that's been one of the problems. It, it will continue to be one. I say to people, we'll be cleaning up this mess probably 10 years from now. There'll be fights over these things, yeah. uh, sadly. And so I you know, uh, I know it's a difficult situation for state and local leaders to be in when they've been given this wealth of money. Uh, in some cases, maybe you might say uh, crazy amounts of money to to address the issue, but then it's uh, less than clear guidance on what they can do with it. So that's why I think you're going to see a push at some point this year, hopefully, for a little more flexibility for local and state governments. And my own view is when the federal government didn't provide guidelines, there should be a pretty wide berth given to local and state governments in how they spend the money. And so, you know, I know uh, Tennessee got $2.36 billion. Uh, Some of that has been distributed through a variety of different programs, including the one that you mentioned. A lot of that the state still has available and and I know uh, state leaders have been looking carefully at, at trying to shepherd tho- those resources and not expend them then only to find that they're uh, later given a lot more flexibility. So I think, uh, you know, because the Tennessee economy in particular has bounced back pretty quickly um, and revenue collections have held up actually a lot better and bounced back a lot better than most people expected, uh, hopefully our state's going to be in a pretty good position going forward. And uh, that doesn't mean there aren't areas where people are hurting uh, in both individuals sure. and businesses. And so we've got to, and, and other institutions and government entities. Uh, so we've just got to, you know, we've got to be mindful. And, and that's why it's frustrating to see in Washington, then the political gamesmanship that's happening, because, you know, there are those who still need help that we haven't gotten help to. And it's a shame that we can't kind of put partisan politics aside and, I understand. And get the right answers. Yeah, I understand. And one of the questions, and one of your constituents, uh, a county mayor, called me, I guess, last week and said, you know, we have to do all this paperwork, which is fine. We don't mind doing that, but we're our time frame is so small to get everything in. Well, what if we don't get everything in? I said, well, the state still has the money, like you said. It's still there. He's like, well, do they keep it for themselves? What are they going to do with it? I said, well, it's one of those things we got to find out. That's just one of the questions we don't know. If you don't get your paperwork in, because – they had spent extra money on like cleaning services to clean the courthouse, to clean county buildings if they thought somebody might came in contact with COVID nineteen. So they do this big cleaning, and you know school systems. The one in Putnam County, the school system Putnam County bought these um, 
uh, static uh, machines to the spray in these schools, and they're thousands of dollars. Well, this right here would uh, should apply because you're cleaning the school every night with these machines. So we're, we're thankful for that. We just don't want to get in trouble by spending on something that might not qualify. Right. Um, and then there's the Families First uh, Corona Relief Act, I believe, that, that provided up to 80 hours for employees that either came in contact with it or had to be out for 14 days caring for themselves or caring for a family member or staying home with a child that may become in contact. So that that was passed early on, too. That right. Was I think it was the second phase. Right. Yes. So that's something y'all did, and that would take care of those employees that have missed work because of this. But there was additional personnel hired to to maintain some of the, the cleaning and some of the guidelines that were in place. So that's good news. Um we, of course, I got good information I can take back to my counties now, and I, I think that's great. One thing that I've noticed, and with the stimulus packages, some states are not doing as well as Tennessee as far as their money goes. You know, some states are struggling. They're, you know, they're losing money and and going broke, so they're begging y'all in Congress and the Senate. Right. We need more money. Well, Tennessee's really not that bad of shape. Tennessee actually. I mean, I know they'll take the money. Don't get me wrong. Paul Bailey may call me and yell at me after the show, but the Tennessee will take the money, but they're not broke. Tennessee's not broke. They've got enough in the rainy day fund, but it's other states like Michigan or or maybe your northern states that have really struggled uh, to maintain. Right. So we have states like Illinois and and then uh, territories like Puerto Rico that have been historically badly managed from a fiscal standpoint and that was really the concern early on that the that the leaders in the senate and the house had was to not turn this into a bailout for poorly managed states and cities across the country so tennessee's in a very good spot and we want to stay that way and i and and you know that's why i would applaud our leaders here in tennessee for for working cooperatively to get the state uh, reopened to you know to empower local school districts to make responsible decisions about how to reopen local schools uh, you know, we've got to get our kids back to school and we've got to get back to work. And, you know, that's I don't say that to be flippant about uh, the the risk from coronavirus. Anyone who's suffered a, a, the disease or lost a loved one, you know, our heart pours out to them. But we also have to keep in perspective the damage that we do not only to our economy and our businesses and to individuals and to our school kids in terms of their learning uh, their learning curves, but we we also have to understand that you know in the end that translates into reduced health for the for our whole citizenry, and so we have to balance that and 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 I think we've learned now you know who the vulnerable population is. We ought to do what we can to protect them, particularly our seniors that sure. are in skilled nursing facilities, those who have pre-existing conditions. Uh, we need to protect them. We need to encourage them to protect themselves. But the rest of us need to get on about business so that we can keep and maintain a robust economy. And I'm glad you mentioned that because one of my best friends in the world um, told me the other day, he's a builder, he said building costs have tripled just because of the shutdown earlier in the year where the people that were manufacturing or producing supplies were not working. And so he says, if we have another shutdown, I don't know what we're going to do. People won't be able to build a house. Well, guess what building houses does for counties it provides a tax base and that provides tax dollars and that provides services for the citizens 
that's tough. And then real estate's going to go way high because somebody's going to decide, well, I can't afford to build a house because building costs went up, so I'm going to go buy a house, and the person selling the house is going to sure. put the price up. So it's just we're trying to avoid that. We're trying to avoid that shortfall or that lockdown, and we just don't want to get into that. So great, great words right there. Well, again, in Tennessee, I want to applaud our state legislature. The governor called them back into session last week, and they successfully passed uh, liability relief. And I think that's another piece of the puzzle that, unfortunately, at the federal level, we haven't been able to navigate yet. Uh, but we don't want, uh, you know, those businesses and institutions that have taken appropriate steps. We don't want them to be kind of held hostage to those who might unscrupulously claim that they did something wrong and use this, you know, as a as a basis for maybe an unjustified lawsuit. We we have to get the economy back up and going. You know, we have the great cir- circumstance uh, that if you go back to February, we were enjoying the best economy, arguably in the history of the nation. Yes. Certainly in my lifetime, I'm 55, and and no doubt it was the best economy, lowest unemployment rate uh, in my lifetime, lowest unemployment rate among, importantly, among minorities and women and children and and youth that we had ever seen on record. And so we can get back to that, but we can't get back there quickly if we don't if we don't start that process of reopening the economy. And we've got to be sane about it. And interestingly, as I've traveled around the the sixth district of Tennessee, uh, you know what I what I've mainly find is that particularly our older citizens, some of those who maybe you would consider to be the most vulnerable, they seem to have the clearest eyes about this. They've lived through a lot. They've seen similar types of challenges in the past with uh, with, uh, disease, uh, you know, pandemics or supposed pandemics, and they're kind of scratching their head, have we gone nuts? And I think there's, I think when all the data is in, after we can look back on this with clear eyes in a few months, hopefully, or a year or so, uh, I think what we'll recognize is that this was not nearly as big a challenge as we thought it was. Right. Now, again, you know, we didn't know in March and February exactly what we were going to face. So I don't think we need to spend a lot of time kicking ourselves over what we've done. But right. I do think we have to learn from it. We can't do this again. Uh, and so we need to get we need to get back to work. Great. We're wrapping up segment two. Uh, ben Rogers on trending with Congressman John Rose. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Training. This is Ben Rogers, and I continue to visit with Congressman John Rose, and I've just been pretty much giddy the whole time because I haven't actually got to spend time with you and talk to you and, and of course, uh, and learn about some of the stuff you've been, you know, working on and since you've been in these 18 months as, as in Congress. So it's been wonderful. We've talked about the stimulus package. I do want to mention one other thing before we get into you as a person because that's one of the things about my show. They give me free reign to what I want to talk about. Uh, but I like to know the individual because I want my listeners to know the individual because to me, you're serving, you're, you're a public servant, you're serving us. And if people don't know who you are, then they may not be able to relate. Makes sense. Makes sense. So I do that and I put people and ask them questions and I only had one person cry on me. So, uh, (laughs) you can feel free to get emotional, but I do like to know who you are. We mentioned payroll tax relief at the beginning just briefly, but, um, of course the president's executive order come out. He says through his executive order, if he's reelected, that the payroll tax relief will not have to be paid back by by citizens, by individuals. My question is, if that actually don't happen to you, and you you may not know, but I'm sure you got some thoughts. If it's not if that's not forgiven, how would we pay it back through tax returns, through or taxes, or, or do you have has that been discussed? I mean, it, I'm trying to wrap my head around it, and it really hasn't been discussed. So. 
for for there to be forgiveness of the payroll tax, uh, it's going to require literally an act of Congress, as they say. (laughs) So I I would be very reticent as I talk to folks across the district. I say this to them. I would be very reticent to take advantage of this. So the so the law does allow a delay in the collection of payroll taxes for emergency situations. And it's that authority that the president has utilized here to try to give some at least some measure of relief. Uh, The president has been a big advocate for this. I'm an advocate for it. I spoke on the House floor about this uh, uh, last month. Uh, I think it's a good idea because, uh, but really for two reasons. Number one is I think it's a great incentive to help get us back to work uh, by giving tax relief to workers and to their employers. Um, and and then the second great feature of it is that it's hard to take advantage. It's hard for there to be abuse of it because, of course, employers are used to filing this. They, you know, it, it's just it's not as prone to being misused by, uh, you know, by unscrupulous actors out there. So I think it's a it's a great idea, and I applaud the president for pushing it forward. But I would be very careful because you are unless. Congress acts, you're going to have to pay it back. And I, I certainly wouldn't want to see people get themselves in a situation where they owe a lot of back sure. payroll tax that has to be paid later. Would, would this, do you think this would take, a pl- take the place of another stimulus check? It, well, I think the president uh, foresaw it as that okay. uh, because, it, because it has the feature of encouraging people to get back to work. And that, you know, that's where I think we want to be. Um, that doesn't mean that would be the only element of further relief because I think it, it could be appropriate for there to be some other elements. For example, I think we need to have some targeted relief targeted at businesses that have been particularly impacted by the coronavirus shutdown. And, and probably the listeners have uh, can give some examples of these. But if you think about industries like one that I've been dealing with here recently is the motor coach, the charter motor coach business, the guys that haul around musical performers or that you might charter to take your senior class on a class trip. Those guys have been devastated. I mean, nearly 100% shut down and not through any fault of their own. I mean, this the government's done this to them. It's not because they manage their businesses poorly. They've right. just been told you cannot operate. Right. And so businesses like that that have seen a some t- in some cases 70, 75, uh, you know, as much as 100% loss of their revenue over the last 4 or 5 months now, uh, we need to help those industries and businesses sure. and if we don't, the the price that we pay is that it will just make the economy that much slower to come back, and that's not to anyone's advantage, uh, you know, benefit. Right. That's good information, I, and I will move on from all the stressful talk. I want to get to, of course, you're in the sixth c- congressional district. The best way to describe that area, it, it's to me, is what Robertson County all the way to on the border to Ventress and Cumberland down to Cumberland. And yeah, down. Robert, Robertson to Pickett and all the way down to uh, to Coffee County. Coffee, in the south. and that's is it all of coffee or just part of all it? of coffee? All of coffee. Yeah. Okay, so all of seventeen counties, part of two. Wow, that's just a that's a big area. So um, you've got good people helping you. I do, and, I do. And, we have a great team and managing that. So that's the district, and so uh, I'll, and I'll go backwards. But what? What made you decide that you wanted to be in Congress? Well, uh, thank you for asking. So I, I'll kind of skip the uh, a lot of the background, but I this is my first time to run for elective office, and uh, so going back to to the 
2016 presidential election when President Trump was running for election. My wife and I spent a lot of time, as did probably everyone, uh, watching that race unfold. And we kind of grew very concerned about the future of the country. We felt like we were at a crossroads as a country. And that's what really started us talking about this. At some point, she got tired of listening to me talk about it. And right. She said, well, if you're going to talk about it, you got to do something <laughs> right. about it. And I said, what would you have me do? And she said, you should run for office. So that's how I got into this. Um, you know, I, again, the concern being that the country that we pass on to, her, to our children, to our children and grandchildren, it should be better than the country that we got from our parents. That's been the tradition in America going all the way back to the beginning of the country. And we don't need to be the generation that breaks that streak. Uh, I've got a little boy. He's about to be three named Guy. He will be the ninth generation of my family to live in Tennessee or wow. he is the ninth generation. And so I want to make sure the country we leave for Guy is, is in good shape. And, and I think that's a real risk. So that's what motivated me to run. And so, and you answered the other question, no, no previous public service, official public service experience, no previous elected office. Well, no elected office. I did serve uh, very briefly for about six and a half months as Tennessee's commissioner of agriculture. I was the 33rd commissioner of agriculture, got appointed when I was 37 back in 2002, right. served for about six months at the end of the Don Sunquist administration. Sure. I, I tell people I came to Nashville after the legislature went home. That was the year that the legislature uh, voted down the state income tax proposal. Many people will remember that. And right. I was an opponent of the income tax. Right. Uh, and so it's kind of remarkable that uh, Governor Sunquist appointed me, but he appointed me, uh, and I came to to town in late July, and then I left uh, in January with the change of administration, and so I, uh, so that was my other, I guess, uh, experience with public service. And you live in Cookville. That's right. Uh, but as a child, you grew up in Smithville. No, I grew or, up in Cookville. Did you grow up in Cookville? So, okay. uh, but you I, grew up on a farm some part-time in Smithville. Well, my, my dad, uh, my mom and dad moved to Cookville from our farm, okay. which is in the, right on the DeKalb-Smith County line. Uh, uh, two little communities uh, mm -hmm. people will know that are from that area, Lancaster and Temperance Hall. Right. And our farm is about halfway between those two little communities. And so they moved here in, in 1964, the year before I was born. I grew up in Cookville, went okay. to all the way through school, graduated from Cookville High School. You're a Cavalier. And uh, I was a Cavalier, uh, but actually started out there at Putnam County Senior High School, but yeah. they changed it to Cookville High School while I was while I was at uh, was while I was in high school, and then I went on to Tennessee Tech and got yeah. a degree in agribusiness economics. But farming's been a part of your life. It has. So my dad continued to operate our family farm. It's been in the family. Guy again will be the ninth generation, and uh, and so he, that was his passion and his love and and his avocation. I guess is a way of saying it. And so he continued to operate the farm, and we would we. So I spent my afternoons and Saturdays and Wednesday afternoons and, and summer vacations at the farm. How so? Uh, this is probably an obvious question, but how much far, how much do you enjoy farming compared to actually you, your attorney, right? I, I, by training, how yes. much? Tell me the difference. Like, I, I oh, can't, attorneys got to be stressful. Farming, not so stressful. <laughs> I mean, I want the, I ask that because that's probably, farming's probably deep down and rooted in you. And that's something that you got a passion for. That's right. And and it is a love of mine. Uh, I, if I could only figure out how, how to make a living doing it. <laughs> right. and, I, and I'd, there were probably some farmers, some full time farmers listening. And I, and you have my, 
apologies because I ruin it for you because I produce and yet I have a hard time making a profit. And so I, my dad uh, loved farming and he instilled that in me at a young age. And so that's something I've always wanted to do. And, and everything else I've done, frankly, up until I ran for this office, I was doing it as a way of supporting my farming habit. Right. And, uh, and, and so, you know, there's the old saying of how do you make a fortune farming? You start off with a big fortune and you farm until <laughs> you run out. Right. So livestock on the farm? Livestock. Uh, historically, we had a, a great day dairy. Okay. Uh, you know, obviously, anyone who's familiar with the dairy industry knows it's been in decline in the southeast for for decades. And so we we exited the dairy business after about 50 years back in the 90s. But today, beef cattle, primary primary uh, product and hay. Uh, we grew to tab- tobacco, burley tobacco. Burley, Probably yep. a lot of your listeners have mm-hmm. worked in a tobacco patch. And so we grew tobacco until the federal program actually uh, just beyond it. And and so today, of course, obviously being in Congress, it's hard to do any of those things. So I'm I'm about done as a farmer until I'm not in Congress anymore. I'm actually on the Ag Extension Committee for the county, for Putnam County. So I know you've probably spent a lot of time with our Extension office here. Sure. And they are wonderful. And I'm just putting a plug in because they've had to fight their way through this and try to figure out how to serve their their people uh and provide the same services and they're not even in the office but one person maybe at a, a day so they're wonderful uh glad to know you've got the farming in you i knew that just wanted you to talk about because i love talking about things that, that drive people and, and a passion for we got one segment left you good to stay one more segment yes sir all right awesome this has been rogers we'll continue with trending and congressman john rose when we come back Welcome back to Trending. This is Ben Rogers. I continue to visit with Congressman John Rose, getting a little personal with him and talking about his uh, growing up in Cookville. He's been here all his life and uh, grew up, uh, spent a lot of time on the farm in Smithville and uh, or DeKalb County, Smith County, and, and learning about him. And, and, of course, you said you graduated from Tech. That's right. And, and when you, as a senior graduating high school, did you have a clue what you wanted to do? I did. So, of course, again, uh, I was active in 4-H. You mentioned extension here. Uh, Scott Chadwell was my extension leader yep. uh, back in the day when I was in 4-H. I showed sheep. Uh, Scott was a great influence and then I was in FFA agricultural education in high school and that had a big a big impact on me so I knew all along I wanted to study agriculture so at at tech I studied agribusiness economics uh, graduated in 1988 Um, by the time I graduated I had kind of come to the realization that I was hoping to take over the family farm and I'm the youngest of four and my dad had always made it clear that kind of as a family tradition the siblings divided the farm. So if I, I knew if I was going to you know, be able to actually operate the farm that I needed to figure out a way to buy out my siblings. Right. And so I, I thought, gosh, I'm not even sure I can make a living farming, right. much less uh, buy the farm. And so I started thinking about what was I going to do. And, and so I had, as I graduated from tech, I had two, two options. I ended up with an opportunity to go to graduate school at Purdue University, study agricultural economics, and also was thinking about law school. And, and I, my thought was I'd be, it could be a country lawyer, right. you know, and that, that might be a good way to make a living. Well, I, I, I ended up going to Purdue to graduate school, which was a great experience and probably had a lot to do with my political thinking today because I got to know a, a gentleman named Earl Butts, who had been the former secretary of agriculture. Right. Uh, and he had a lot of he and the other professors there at Purdue, Purdue had a lot of influence on me. But as I finished up graduate school in 1990, I still was thinking, you know, I want to move back to to the farm in, in rural Smith County, DeKalb County. And so I decided law school was the answer. So I went to Vanderbilt Law School and uh, graduated in, in 1993. Um, and and as so ha- often happens in life, you get thrown these kind of curveballs. So 
So I, I was had a pretty big debt coming out of law school. Right. I borrowed money to go to Vanderbilt Law School, for goodness sakes, which uh, and I thought, you know, I would never be out from under this debt. So I took a job at a large law firm in Chattanooga, thinking I'll, I'll, learn, I'll, I'll learn from the big guys down sure. there and also make some money. Uh, and I've kind of left out part of the story is that while I was at law school, a fellow law school student and I had a business idea. It was really his idea, I should to be fair. And we started a business. And uh, and so in the beginning, he he ran that business, and I was just kind of a silent participant. Uh, but by the end of 1994, that business had started. It was clear there was really something to it. You know, right. we were going to really uh, have something there. And so. And in, in then in, so in uh, 1994, I left the practice of law after just a little over a year and came back to the family farm. My grandmother passed away. My dad offered me a chance to, to uh, move to the farm, which is another long story I won't include today. But uh, I came back and got into the IT training business of all things. So trained as an ag econ person and then a lawyer. And then I have now spent my career in the IT training business, training computer wow. professionals. You're very diverse uh, on a lot of things. That's great. And so IT training is, is a passion too now. It is. And so we, we were very fortunate. We, the idea that we had was in the early 90s, Microsoft, everybody's heard of Microsoft, they were moving from the desktop, things like Microsoft Windows and Office, you know, right. Microsoft Word, those products, to the back office using uh, uh, with their flagship product being Windows NT Server. Sure. Your IT people will remember the days of Windows NT. And so uh, it wasn't clear they were going to be successful because uh, at that day, in those days, we had Unix and we had Novell Netware. And, uh, but Microsoft was trying to move into that space, and they, they set up a professional certification program. And in order to get those certifications, IT professionals had to pass these high-stakes exams. And c- coming a- away from our law school experience, we knew that there were prep products, exam prep products like a lot of listeners might have used to take the ACT or the SAT. And so we developed the first practice exams for Microsoft certification in 1992-93 time frame. And that turned out to be uh, the right – we were in the right place at the right time. That's great. Over the next six years, we trained about 3.5 million Microsoft professionals all around the world. Wow. So I, I've learned something today. That's that's why I do this. I get to learn about you, get to learn about my people and, uh, and my guests. That's great. Uh, of course, another passion, you're doing it right now. You're serving our country. You're serving the the district of Tennessee and the state of Tennessee, and you talked about why you wanted to run. And you, your wife told you to do something about it. And I'm, I'm pretty sure anytime my wife speaks, I do what she tells me to do, and you're probably the same way. But I know there's something there that's driving you as well to make a difference, and you want to make a difference, or you wouldn't be doing this. What would you like to see happen going forward? What and you've accomplished a lot so far in 18 months or 20 months, but it's what would you like to see going forward? Well, I think the answer in Washington is that it, we need to do two things. One. We need to get back to what the founding fathers originally envisioned for this country. So they they thought the federal government should be a, a government of limited and enumerated powers. So if you haven't read Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution in a while, you should go back and read it right. and keep in mind that they never foresaw the federal government becoming the huge – uh, Leviathan that it is today, they wanted government close to the people. They wanted city and county and state government to kind of be where it happened. And they wanted the federal government to kind of stick to its knitting, so to speak, and do things like providing for the national defense sure. and, uh, and you know, uh, managing trade and patents and things right. of that sort, the postal system. Right. Um, and so they, they set out in, in the Constitution what they wanted the federal government to do. And I think we've gotten way far afield from that. And I think that, you know, we, we talk a lot you hear a lot of people in Washington talk about, well, we've got to get government efficient. We've got to eliminate waste, fraud, and abuse. And I would just tell you, the listeners, there's no way we'll ever eliminate all the waste, fraud, and abuse. The answer is that you kind of have got to take a broadsword to government and cut it down to size right. and get it back closer to the people. 
the, the leaders like yourself here in Putnam County and in our city in Cookville and our cities across the 6th District and our state legislature are going to always do a better job of keeping government within its constraints. And that's why you see Tennessee thriving, because our state legislature, uh, whether it's been led by Republicans or Democrats historically, has done a good job of keeping of managing government well. And, and frankly, the federal government has done an awful job. And so so the values that we need in Washington are our Tennessee values, and we need to get then we need to get Washington out of Tennessee. And I, I I like what you said because in the past, of course, I've been doing this fifteen years now, so I've I've worked with a lot of county officials, a lot of county mayors, and some of their their holdups or some of their problems have come from unfunded mandates by the state. Well, I think the state's getting away from that. They've done a lot better the last few years to to stop those unfunded mandates down these uh, counties and cities where they've got to come up with the money that maybe their revenue's not growing, maybe their tax base is not growing, um, and the state's saying, well, you got to pay for this. So I think they've gotten away from that some, and that's exactly what you just said. Get away from that and keep keep the let the counties and cities do the best they can with the state's help. And the federal government was, like you said, defense is a big part of the budget. Uh, and it should be. Yeah. It's the number one responsibility of the federal government is to keep the republic safe. And so that's, that's great. I, I love the I love the, the ideas you have. And some of the things, is there any future legislation that you have your, your mind wrapped around right now or uh, you'd like to see introduced or is that something too soon to talk well, about? Well, probably the most important bill that, that I've introduced is one that would try to restrain our federal court system. I think one of the problems that we've seen in recent years is that the federal courts have gotten outside of their mandate. Uh, and so you see them increasingly interfering with the executive branch and the legislative branch's work, uh, essentially setting themselves up as a super legislature. So when you see, uh, you know, justices of the Supreme Court making up law or saying, you know, this has always been hiding in the law, waiting to be discovered. When you hear that kind of language, you know that the courts are outside of their lane. You know, that's why we we have a democracy. We elect a president. Uh, we elect we elect legislators, senators, and and members, state uh, house Re- house of representative members, and it's their job to legislate, not the court's job. And so we've uh, so I introduced a bill last year that would uh, stop the use of nationwide in- injunctions. And we've all seen this in recent years. The president comes along and he issues an, an executive order to do something, and then the next thing you know, here come the courts and they say, "Well, we're going to bar this while it's being litigated." Right. And 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 the problem with that is that we have uh, not. Uh, you know, we have federal district courts all over the country. There are literally hundreds of federal district judges. And so if you're a litigant and you can just go shop until you find a judge that's that you think might rule your way, and then and then that judge can stop the whole country from implementing something. Uh, and essentially what we see happening, and whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, it has happened both ways in recent years, frankly. Uh, you see the courts usurping the will of the people through their elected representatives. And that has to stop. And so I introduced a bill last year that would allow an immediate appeal of any nationwide injunction to the Supreme Court. In fact, it doesn't allow an appeal. It forces the Supreme Court to hear those cases. So if a federal district court judge issues a nationwide injunction, the litigants have an immediate right of appeal to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has to hear that case. They won't like that. Frankly, right. the Supreme Court won't because there'll be a whole lot of cases coming their way that they don't want. Right. And so they'll quickly do their job and say to the federal district court judges over whom they have jurisdiction, they'll say, quit sending these cases to us. And that, that's the aim of that legislation. And frankly, it should be a bipartisan uh, uh, it should be a bipartisan bill. We've had trouble getting into Democrats to sign on right now because the shoe's on the other foot right now. Sure. I think if you know when and one day we will have a Democrat president again, they'll be real quick to recognize the logic of what I've what I've proposed there. Now we we're hopeful that we might get some get some uh, action on that bill. But but those are the that's one thing in particular. You know, obviously one of the big accomplishments of the 116th Congress has been the passage 
our ratification of the USMCA trade agreement, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada right. trade agreement, that uh, I, I think is a good first step. It is a first step toward uh, rewriting the trade laws of this country. And anybody who's worked in manufacturing across the 6th District knows that for for two or three decades, our country has been kind of blindly letting our jobs go overseas uh, and we have to and, you know, we've gotten a tough lesson in that just this year sure. with what we've seen out of China. And we've got to rethink the way we do trade in this country. And I'm a big believer as an economist trained as an economist. I'm a big believer in the benefits of trade. Right. But it has to be fair trade. And what we've what we've, I think, come to realize is that the rest of the world is not playing fair with the United States and we've let them abuse us. And right. we've got to fix that. And we got to bring home our good jobs to the United States. Wow. Amen. Thank you so much. Uh, will you come back? Because there's five or six things I didn't get to. Sure. And it can be later on. It won't have to be tomorrow. <laughs> I won't break it back in. Thanks for being here. Uh, enjoy talking to you. It's been a delight for me. And I hope I hope you've uh, go away wanting to come back again. Everybody listening today had a wonderful show. Um, this has been Rogers. It's been trending. Congressman John Rose has been my guest. Excited to have you back. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Ben. You I appreciate anything. it. Thank you for your service. Everything you do for us, I'm so grateful. We'll see you soon. Yes, sir. This has been trending. I hope you have a good weekend. We'll see you next week.